0: I hope all of you, brethren, will really be, be watching the world news. You know, things are happening very rapidly. And I did preach, well, whatever it was, four weeks or five weeks ago on prophecy. And I'm not going to do that today. But I'll tell you, I pre- I want to almost every Sabbath. And I'm sure Dr. O'Neill was. He's always following world news. He wants to as well, I should say. But we can't do that. But things are really happening, and it's very exciting. So be watching. And Jesus said, watch and pray after describing these very events that are starting to occur. And I think it would be interesting to most of you who know this, or maybe not most of you, but some of you may know, that next next Tuesday, August 22nd, is the theoretical day when Mohammed went to Jerusalem and then went on to heaven, supposedly, on a white horse. And a number of the Muslim sects think that's very exciting, and they're indicating indirectly something big may happen on that day. We don't know what that will be. They may have another 9-11 surprise for us or maybe some other thing. So please pray that God will protect his people and protect his work and guide all these things for good. That may or may not occur, but that's what a number of writers are telling us in the world news. I want to describe a scene that took place back in Kansas City. I was told this from a very dear friend that I know very well and and trust, and I'm just getting it secondhand uh, here, but recently, uh, Mr. Wally Smith, our new presenter on the telecast, who will be making programs himself in a few weeks, went up to preach, and I don't know whether it was a sermon or sermonette, I forgot to ask, but at any rate, his, his jacket was all messed up. His tie was all strung over here. And a number of the brethren, as he was going up or starting to go up, they said they pointed, and they pointed like this. And he kind of smiled just kept walking up. And as he got up in front of the congregation to preach, he said, Brethren, some of you are staring at me. He said, You think I'm all disorderly in my appearance? And he said, You know, I'm making an impression on you. A lot of them nodded. And he said, first impressions are very important. People often remember what you do the first time they hear from you or the first time they see you. And I thought that was an interesting way to start out a sermon where he was encouraging the brethren. And I don't remember the context of the sermon. I did not hear it. I'm not repeating his sermon because I don't really know what it was. It was something about making a good impression on the others at the church But it reminded me, and I'd already had this when I talked to this individual, had this topic in mind, on new people that come in. What first impression do you make on the new brethren that come in? What impression are you going to make here and you brethren over in you know, Little Rock or Los Angeles or Seattle or Perth, Australia or Johannesburg, South Africa? What impression are you going to make on new people that come into the church What impression are you going to make individually and collectively on brethren who have fallen away and maybe gone back to the world, some of them, for several years, and then they suddenly come back? You said, well, we came back early in your world that you didn't come back right away and you had this kind of a superior judgmental attitude. Well, several years ago, as all of you know, I made an issue of that, but I haven't for some time because I found that some of the brethren were kind of looking down, On you know different ones Mr. Carl McNair came a year after I did And then Mr. Bryce and Mr. Weston And others Mr. Winnale And others came even later Well you came late What's wrong with you? Well God is not judging them in that way And I'm not judging them in that way Because frankly brethren as I've told you I knew and a few of us Not very many A few of us at headquarters And I thank God almighty guided the circumstance where I, as a senior evangelist who knew the people so well, had taught many of them, I was right there in the middle of what was going on. And I knew who they were, I knew what they were up to, and I knew where it it was leading. I wasn't guessing. After a while, I kept having all these talks and lunches quietly and put it all together. You couldn't do that. All of you couldn't do that. These ministers who came a few years later, they couldn't all do that. And many of you, brethren, and many of you, brethren, around the world, and some of the brethren were just out there, and they heard bad things about us, you know, and they said, well, we better wait, we're not sure. And some of them were so discouraged by the confusion and the great apostasy, they didn't know what to do. So when they come back, how are we going to welcome them with a kind of a look down our nose, superior attitude toward them? We need to think about that. What first impression do you make? As people come to church for the first time, or people older people come back, ex-worldwide people come back, or some of our own kids who've strayed for a while. They go away for years at a time, years at a time, and then they suddenly wake and come back like a prodigal son. They've made mistakes. Well, you know, we need to think about that very, very much, because hopefully we will have hundreds of new people coming with us in the next year or two, And hopefully over time we will have thousands, possibly tens of thousands of brand new people coming with us from all around the world. And I believe we will. I don't mean in the next two or three years, but I mean as these events start happening big time in prophecy within the next two to five years, then people are going to be stirred and a lot of outsiders are going to wake up and say, there must be something behind this. What's going on? And they will start coming. And maybe Indian women out in India with their saris and maybe markings on their face. Maybe African tribal men will come in where there's fresh, you know, from the world and they have earrings or they have other kinds of strange things that we're not used to. Other people come in with other habits and other ways. Some young kids are going to come in with us from America and Canada and Britain and so forth. They'll have long hair. What's wrong with you? You have long hair like a woman. We can't love you. Oh, really? Just remember, brethren, please remember, Jesus said the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart and strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if people have been mixed up, if they have been hurt, if they have been confused, or if they have been totally blinded by Satan the devil and out there and they don't know and they come in, we've got to welcome them with open arms We really do with all our heart. And I hope we can be a more warm and welcoming church. That's so important to God Almighty and so more important to, to us ourselves as we want to grow and want to have a greater fellowship and a greater impact on this world and the work of God. Now, many of our brethren do very, very well. And I've heard of individual ones who are really loving and warm and take in new people and take them out to dinner or have them over to their home and make them very welcome. And that's wonderful. Many of our brethren do that, but some are not so good, and they don't do that. And each of us has to think about it. How do I do? And each of you individual churches out there, try to think about the atmosphere that you create in welcoming young people who have some worldly attitudes and outsiders who have some worldly attitudes And ex-worldwiders who may have stayed away too long. Oh, they stayed away too long, so we can't let them back. (laughs) Most of you didn't come in the first two years. You know that. So if they waited a few years longer, what's the big deal? Maybe God didn't stir them until a little bit later. So we've got to really, really understand that, brethren, and think about it and try to be a very warm and a very welcoming church. Uh, Monica, my secretary, gives me uh, and all our ministers a kind of an update or an overview of the letters that come in, encouraging letters. And I tell her to put some bad letters in there, too. Give us a sampling of all the letters that come in every several weeks. And we have so many brethren saying, I came back, and the brethren were wonderful, and I now I know I'm back home, you know, and they tell us that. And that's wonderful. Let's turn to John chapter 14, if you would. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. And here is some of the last instruction Jesus Christ gave before he died. Because as it tells us, of course, right here in this context, this evening during the last Passover, John 14. I'm sorry, John 13. I I'm get the wrong number here to you. John 13, verse 31. When Judas had gone out, you know, he was right there at the beginning and Jesus washed his feet. But apparently he went out before the bread and the wine. Then Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and so on. And then he said in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment? Is God doing away with the old commandments? No. He's simply magnifying them. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what made it new was Jesus' own example. And we remember time after time when Jesus was associating with the harlots and the tax collectors and the Pharisees. What are you doing over there? And you're not as good as we are. And you shouldn't be over there. But Jesus was over there. And he obviously, frankly, brethren, when you see the story of the Gospels, and I know they were inspired, and I hope you know they're inspired. God shows us a man who is loving, who had outflowing concern, who is not judgmental in that way. The one he condemned, or the ones, I should say, he condemned the very, very most were the Pharisees. Read about it. It's quite a story. Matthew chapter 23, over and over. He says, you snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wow. Jesus wasn't very nice. (laughs) No, he wasn't nicey-nice on the religious leaders who should have known better. He was more upset at them by far than the new people who are confused or hurt or turned off or just weak and got into drunkenness or got into uh, sex or adultery or something in a wrong way. And he would forgive them if they repented, of course. But he wasn't constantly looking down his nose at them. And he set us that example all day long. Jesus was helping, blessing, encouraging, serving, healing people all day long. He didn't say, have you been in the church five years before I could be nice to you? There wasn't any church. Jesus was the only converted man on the earth for most of his ministry. Have you ever thought of that? John the Baptist died very quickly after Jesus began his ministry, if you read the story. Who else was converted? No one. It showed how Peter cursed and swore and denied Christ three times. Why? The leading apostle... Because the Holy Spirit was not yet given. That's why they weren't yet converted. He told Peter, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. But Peter was not converted yet. Jesus had to live all day long for the better part of three years without being around any other converted man or woman. No one else. He had to get on his knees and talk to God and say, God, I was there with you, and now I'm down here. And this earth surrounded by all these carnal people, surrounded by my human flesh, please help me. And as you know, he cried out with all of his being. So the great drops of sweat poured down with mingled with blood, apparently. He was so extreme in his agony, crying out to God, as it tells us there in Hebrews chapter 5. So he had to have help. But he didn't have a lot of wonderful church support at all. But he had been with God, and he remembered those things and had a unique perspective, of course, and help in that way. But he still was surrounded by human flesh. But he says, you love one another as I have loved you. Giving, helping, serving, forgiving, not judging, not putting people down, not acting superior, who gives you the right to come in? Why are you so weak? By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the key verse of my sermon. If you have, by this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And brethren, that's so important. What is the thing that sets us apart? Well, as far as God is concerned, it's keeping His law and His Sabbath. That's a big thing. Jesus told us in the Old Testament that's a sign. But as far as other people are concerned, just because we keep Saturday as they look at it instead of Sunday, that doesn't set us off. That makes them think we're weird, (laughs) you know, just of and by itself. You know that because there are millions of Jews that keep the Sabbath. Millions of Jews don't, but some Jews do keep the Sabbath. Millions of Seventh-day Adventists and hundreds and thousands of Church of God people, Seventh-day Baptists, others keep the Sabbath. that don't really believe in the full truth, but they're sincere people as a whole. But they don't understand the full truth that God has given us. But they keep the Sabbath in their own way at least. But the world doesn't convert it because of that. The world looks at what our fruit is, how we react with them, how loving and warm and kind and welcoming we are to them, and how welcoming and warm and kind and forgiving and sharing we are with one another. So we need to think about this very, very much, brethren, and more than I think we have. But at any rate, a lot of you brethren came, and you brethren, I'm talking around the world now, and a lot of us, were we grew up under Mr. Armstrong, and we thought Mr. Armstrong was real strict, some of us even beyond what he was. I personally lived with him and worked with him. I mean, lived with him since I spent actually weeks or months in the same hotel, traveling and living in the same suite and being with Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong and Dick and later other trips alone with him, and so on. Mr. Apartin spent thousands of hours with Mr. Armstrong and his older age and came to know him very well. And I'm sure Mr. Apartin will testify, and Mr. Ames will testify, and I can certainly testify that Mr. Armstrong was not near as strict on all these little points the last 10 or 15 years of his life. I don't mean the last 10 or 15 days. You could say, well, he was senile. No, he wasn't senile. I'm talking about the last 10 years of his life at least. But some of the younger ministers and older brethren saw these things about exact lengths of hair and skirts and a man wearing an earring and, you know, a woman wearing makeup. And he said at certain points and changed back and forth three times on that. And that became a big, big deal to them. Is that a big, big deal to God? Well, frankly, it's not. It's not, brethren. you got to get that through your heads. It is not a big deal to God. God says, love him with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So if wearing your hair a little long offends others in the church, and you come in and you're finally converted and understand that, yes, you would probably not wear your hair quite so long. And most young men figure that out. If young men come in and one man came out in San Diego a number of years ago and he had his shirt open, you could see his hairy chest and this uh, bracelet thing was hanging there and so on. Well, after a few weeks, he kind of got better. A few weeks later, he left, though, but he was there several weeks, and I don't think anyone persecuted him on that occasion, you know, And because we're not supposed to. That was just something he didn't understand at first. Other young men will come in with earrings. I don't want my sons to wear earrings, but on the other hand, I've had some very fine young men in the church that have worn earrings, and God shows very clearly back in the Old Testament that remember uh, Aaron told them to take their earrings men and women, and to put them in the fire, help him make this idol and he didn 't say it with any sense of condemnation about them wearing the, that that was never said, apparently, men were wearing earrings, and women it was no big deal, just as some it 's a matter of a custom. People say, well, that custom became, became among the homosexuals, and so it looks bad. well, yes, it did several years ago. So we encourage our young men not to wear earrings Because it offends some of you older brethren <laughs> That's the main reason But I'm not sure that to be forbidden forever Is some major thing I'm sure it's not a major thing in God's sight But if I do some weird thing And it offends people I try to quit that, you know And, and uh, we all should try to quit whatever offends our brother Yes, we should do that But let's get our perspective straight What offends God? What is it that offends God? When you have another God before the true God When you take God's name in vain When you make an idol in place of the great creator You can't put God in an idol You can't put God in a picture frame That's terrible When you break God's holy Sabbath When you hate And and when you first dishonor your parents That's the first one of the last six Because your parents in a sense stand in place of God And are representation of God Honor your father and mother When you don't do that And when you then come to hate and kill other human beings made in God's image because of that attitude to hate. And when you commit adultery and break that tremendous, powerful covenant that God shows as a relationship of Christ and the church to teach you everlasting love and loyalty and giving and helping and sharing together until death does you part. All that kind of thing. When you break that by adultery and when you steal And when you lie and when you covet all the time, sitting around lusting after another man's wife or another man's property or what things you don't need and shouldn't have or whatever. Those are the things God hates. And other attitudes described, of course, of putting down your brother and stirring up dissension and so forth. Described back in the book of Proverbs. I think he talks about six things God hates. But God does not hate it for a young man to come in and his hair is a little bit long. And you should not hate it either. And God does not hate it if some girl comes and she's not exactly perfectly dressed. We'll work with her. You leave that up to the ministers. And I would ask the elders to leave that up to the senior ministers in most cases. I found that some of our newer ministers get right on their case. And they're very proud to get on their case. No, get off their case. If someone's committing adultery, that's different. Very different. Or fornication. But not those little things like that. Those are very minor things compared to the Ten Commandments. Very, very, very minor. In fact, they're not even mentioned in the Bible, most of them, except men wearing long hair. So please, let's get our priorities straight. Our attitude should be that we love one another. We give, we help, we serve, we have outflowing concern, and we have a warm and welcoming atmosphere. You brethren right here. You brethren back in in Nashville and Knoxville who may hear this later. You you brethren in Kansas City. You brethren down in Perth and Brisbane and Sydney, Australia. And down in Johannesburg and around the world. All you brethren, all of us, let's be like that. Let's build that kind of church so people will know that they're They're coming into a happy church. A loving church. A receptive church. Don't get buggy about little things. The main thing God is concerned with is to love God and His spiritual law. The Ten Commandments, that way of life which is based on giving and helping and serving. It really, really is. Again, remember here, verse 35, By this shall all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, this is the identifying sign to thousands and tens of thousands, perhaps later hundreds of thousands of outsiders that we are God's people. If we have that kind of love, so let the people know that they are more than welcome, that we're delighted for them to be with us and among us, and that we have a family atmosphere, a family atmosphere where we're loving, helping, encouraging one another, and they have a warm, welcoming attitude. One thing I've commented on before, and I'll throw this in for extra here today (laughs) but i've said this a number of times and i think a lot of our people still don't get it and they don't want to do it i would like some of our new brethren to come in and sometimes sort of clapped or said amen or oh yeah or something well i'm not trying to encourage pentecostalism i hope you can all figure that out i've been in the ministry now for about 54 years as far as actually acting as a minister leading a nationwide baptizing tour 54 years ago this month and then starting the san diego church 54 years ago next month and so on And then ordained that december so i've been around for a while i've been around the track several times all right So i've had that experience But brethren we must not get excited about little things and take these little things way way out of out of context That come up Anyway let's turn to isaiah 58 Isaiah 58, and God gives us a little bit more of his mind on these things uh, back here in this particular prophecy that's really talking about fasting. But I think we may not remember this, but it's very important. He says in Isaiah 58 to his faithful ministers, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Do you think God wants me to get up on the television or Mr. Ames and yell against makeup? I don't think so (laughs) that's not the big problem with God that's not the big problem at all that's nothing all right they were talking about real sins yet they seek me daily and they pretend that they're religious we have a whole religious community here in Charlotte and they say why have we fasted and you've not seen afflicted our souls and you take no notice some of them may fast or partially fast. Some of them have a Jews fast as they read in these various religious things. They're not really fasting God's way, but they sort of half fast. In, the, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure, exploit your labors. You fast for strife and debate. You see, some people in ancient Israel and the Pharisees, they fasted, well, I'm, I'm holy and I fast twice in the week and this poor sinner over here, look down on him, O God. And yet Jesus looked to the sinner ...who beat his breast and said, forgive me, O God, for I'm a sinner. And he forgave that man, and he did not forgive the Pharisee... ...who was all self-righteous, because he was fasting twice a week, you see... ...making himself self-righteous. So you fast, you see, in this competitive attitude. And to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. This is not the kind of fast God has chosen. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen... To loose the bonds of wickedness, yes, we've got to get over our own wickedness. We don't pass to punish someone else or yell at them or threaten them or put them down or be judgmental and look down our nose at them. But to get over our own wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free. Now, we weren't evil back in the strict days of Ambassador College, but we did have too many rules. And we really did, and Mr. Armstrong came to realize that later. And some students did get turned off, and they had way too many at Big at Brickett Wood. And when I was transferred over them, I, it was a kind of amusing to me. I mean, it really was, because uh, as Dr. Gemano may remember and Mr. Ames, I was regarded as a very strict guy in Pasadena. And they thought Rod was very conservative. But when I went to Brickett Wood, all of a sudden I was very liberal and they were worried about me. (laughs) I won't mention the other fellows on the staff, but they were worried about me because they had these rules that had been put on them. And those who were below par, who were on the uh, watch list, I forget what it was, but on the academic watch list who had bad grades, they put those bad grades right up on the bulletin board in the student center so that it was kind of like a public dunce cap. These are the people on academic probation. That's stupid to publicly humiliate some kid that has poor grades in college. The minute I heard about that, I changed it. I say the minute, but that day or the next day, as soon as I could. And my particular boss over there didn't like that, but I did it anyway because Mr. Armstrong told me I could report directly to him in college matters. Then they had the girls come in. And they had to be in by 10 o'clock or something every night and even Friday and Saturday night where they'll let the fellows stay up, I think, Saturday night at least till midnight. Well, I changed that. I thought, well, Gassi, the, the fellow may be taking a girl out and he, she can stay out if he can stay out. We hope the girls wouldn't be all alone down in London, you know, getting in trouble or getting raped or beat up or kidnapped. But we changed that where it was kind of equal. And I, I changed that right away. And then... A couple of other rules. I better not go into all these and make it look too bad. But I changed three, four rules actually I got to thinking about. I was a great liberal. Wow. Rod Meredith the liberal. And I was proud to carry that banner at that time because they had too many, too many of those rules over there that were really not God's rules. And Mr. Armstrong didn't fully understand them. And when I'd explained them to him, he agreed with me and we did change them. He didn't fully understand what was happening and uh, and so on. And that's not the way he normally thought. I do want to make that very clear. In Proverbs, going on back now to the book of Proverbs, notice the mind of God. This Bible is the mind of God in print. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. I have talked, not to many, but to two or three ex-Brickett Wood students who are still hurting, and they dropped out, and they were just mad because of these very strict rules and the very strict approach that was taken there. And once you offend a young kid like that to publicly humiliate and put him down, it takes him years to get over that. Maybe God will literally have to shake him up, and the whole world starts to collapse around him, and then he'll say, well... I You know there are much bigger things going on Than my being mad at Mr. So-and-so Because of something that happened 30 years ago But when a brother is offended By some stupid stuff we do That's wrong And it takes them years to get over that Verse 21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue And those who love it will eat its fruit If you're so quick to catch someone And say well you did this or that Over some little thing It may take them years to get over it Years to get over it and to be willing to forgive. They're weak, you say. Yes, they are weak. But you're not supposed to offend the little ones who are hurt by our wrong comments and put down attitudes and so forth. Verse 24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I've had some friends like that, and I very deeply appreciate that. Friends. I never had brothers, but I grew up, as I said, in a neighborhood where we had a whole bunch of guys, and I had 25 friends, and I I really did. I mean, I could go to and Ducky's station wagon, her car one night, and Carter McKee's station wagon the next night, and Monty Taylor's car the next night, and we roamed around as teenage boys do (laughs) and had all these guys that I knew and loved and so on. But you've got to show yourself friendly. And I'm a very intense person, and I guess I became more intense after I was converted, but back then I was a kid, and I guess not intense in that way, and had a number of friends. But you do need to be friendly. But think about it in the church context. Brethren, if the church does not come across as friendly, if the church is not the friend of these new people, you see, if the church is not warm and welcoming to these new people, what are they going to think? I come into these churches, this church, and, and so and so near the back says, well, have you been keeping your third tithe? What is the third tithe? They've never heard of it. Let the minister take care of those problems. They've never heard of it. Brethren, when I came to Ambassador College, you know how much I knew? I guess I could say, you know, big, put a big egg, goose egg up here. I, I did know about the Ten Commandments. Mr. Armstrong talked about that in general on the radio. And he talked about uh, the Sermon on the Mount and loving your neighbors yourself and that kind of understood that. He talked about prophecy and understood the general idea that there was a real God in world affairs and there was going to be a great beast power, United States of Europe rising up, dominated by Germany. I heard that way back in 1944. But apart from those things, I really didn't know much of anything. I did not know about the Sabbath. I did not know about the Holy Days, never heard of them, ever, ever. I didn't know about clean and unclean meats. I didn't know that I was not supposed to wear makeup. (laughs) But the girls were wearing makeup, and we had more healings in the church during the 1940s than we had after we had made the makeup decision. People were wearing makeup, and we had more healings. Isn't that amazing? Now, frankly, I don't think it was a reason for it. It was just another thing. But as we got bigger and Mr. Armstrong got involved more in the administrative part of the work, we didn't have as many healings, and that's the reason. But nevertheless, God didn't withdraw His hand in healing because women were wearing makeup. Think about it. Think about it. You self-righteous ones who try to put down others for that kind of thing. Think about it. The healings were more frequent back then. They were. So anyway... Uh, I came and I had to learn all these things. Well, Mr. Armstrong was very patient with me and very patient with my uncle. My uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, who later wrote the correspondence course that went up to lesson 58. Some of our brethren have said, oh, I got the whole course, you know, up to eight, uh, lesson 48. I said, no, Then others will say lesson 52. I'll say, no, <laughs> they don't understand. The whole thing went up to lesson 58. And they were continuing it, Uncle Paul and... Dr. Hay were working and I helped some wrote a parts of a few lessons. Dr. Hay wrote much more than I did and my uncle wrote most of it. But my uncle helped outline it and put it together. And so we all worked on it together as a team. But, my uncle Paul had smoked a cigar for years. And when I was with him out at the stockyards, well, he'd sometimes smoke a cigar or here or there, just two or three cigars a week. He didn't smoke every day, I guess. But uh, he went to ask Mr. Armstrong about it after a few weeks. And Mr. Armstrong never bawled him out, never landed on him. My uncle told me about it later, and I think Mr. Armstrong did too. He was kind of amused. and He said, Rod, your uncle talked to me, this was years later, he said, about smoking cigars. And he said, I know, you know, that smoking's not a major issue. But he said, I, I explained to him, well, uh, you know, whatever you do, you have... Between you and God But there's the give way and the get way And uh, there's also the principle Of glorifying God in your body And smoking does do a certain amount of damage Dr. Meredith And it would be better if you probably understood that And you study into it and think about it Well Uncle Paul didn't quit smoking cigars He told me right away But after several weeks of thinking and praying He quit Mr. Armstrong never got on his t- case Never came back on it again He just gave it to him to think about And that was it Uncle Paul had been taught by my Methodist grandmother I talk about, whom I love very much. She was the president of the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And temperance was not temperance, it was prohibition. I've heard told you about that before, you know. They talk about the liquor traffic. And just the way they said it, you knew it was bad, really bad. So she was really down on anything like that. And uh, Uncle Paul had been reared by her. now, I was the only grandson, so I got away with more, and when she 'd get on my case, I would simply leave and go home, so she couldn 't fully control me, but she was stronger in controlling my uncle and my my uh, my dad as they grew up. So Uncle Paul had never drunk, and here he came, and we were drinking wine, and, and he discussed it with Mr. Armstrong, and Mr. Armstrong said, "Well, dr Meredith, you don 't have to drink wine except just a tiny thimbleful at the passover that 's it and he didn 't push him. Years later, and I mean it was not, well, many years, but two to four years later, whatever, several years later, I came to my uncle's house one time for dinner, and I was shocked he had some wine, (laughs) red wine. I thought, boy, he's loosening up. But think about the psychology. Guess where the wine was from? It was from Israel. (laughs) You know what I mean? Somehow that made it not quite so bad. It came came from Israel. So that was the first wine. Later he got to, you know, he drank other wine too. But first it had to be wine from Israel. Just step by step, he loosened up. Mr. Armstrong didn't punish him or yell at him. He didn't try to go around trying to push it on everybody else now. But he had to understand over a period of time, as he was taught by God's church, which is the mother of us all, and the church is to teach us how to keep the Sabbath, how to keep the holy days, as you see from Colossians chapter 2, and all those things. So we should be humble and teachable and taught by the church. And I'm teaching you now, as God's servant in the church, a way of life, of love, of kindness, of receptivity, being warm and welcoming And I would rather you would let down the bars a little too much and be warm and welcoming than to go to the opposite extreme and be the tight-lipped, I'm-going-to-get-you-if-you-make-a-mistake kind of a church. And I think God would too. I really mean that if you err on the side of love. I don't mean lust and loosening everything up and breaking the Ten Commandments. I'm just talking about this little stuff, this little stuff that's of very little importance to God as long as the attitude is right. So anyway, let's understand that. Notice verse chapter 19, Proverbs 19, verse 22. What is desired in a man is loving kindness. If you look in the margin, it says literally. The Hebrew literally means loving kindness. Now, most of us don't have enough of that. I don't have enough of that. I grew up being somewhat strict. And and intense and came in during a very more of a strict time in the church of God And I'm an, an intense person by nature But I did have a lot of friends because I basically like people as my mother did But I want to have more I, some people have just a natural personality My friend Ducky did I talk about just warm and bubbly But because of that warm bubbly nature and just come easy go easy Ducky became an alcoholic and I was the only friend who went to his funeral And later uh... I had other friends who were very, David John Hill, absolutely warm and loving and humorous. Hilarious Hill, we called him. <laughs> and he was warm, but he had a problem similar to Ducky's. later on. Come on him. Sometimes that bubbly just easy come, easy go. But nevertheless, you can be very warm and loving without having a come, easy, come, easy go approach to sin or to drinking or to anything else. We know that. Be warm and loving as best you can. You don't have to put it on. If every one among you suddenly comes up like the hail fellow, how you doing, Charlie? How's your wife? How you doing? Then people say, ooh, what's this guy doing? He is play acting. (laughs) You can't play act and make it turn out right. But if you sincerely love people and ask God to help you love people, to be warm and friendly and encouraging and to give to them, it's not just talk but actions. And gradually as you learn to do that, it can become more natural and more sincere over time as you pray about it. And that's what all of us have got to do in the right way. And I hope that all of you can see that, uh, that principle. That's very, very important. So we want to bring people along with love and let them know that we are delighted if they come with us. And that's what God wants us to do, of course. Uh, let's turn now, if you would, to Romans chapter 12 in your New Testament. Romans chapter 12. I often call this the Christian living chapter. And... Uh, So it's a very, very wonderful, very important chapter. I'd like to read all of it. Probably shouldn't do that. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to get a little tea here. Paul writes to us through the Bible, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give your bodies as a lively as it can be translated. A lively sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but enthusiastically a lively sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or intelligent service. It's not intelligent or rational or reasonable anymore to offer animals when we know Christ has done that for us. But give your body, give your life actively to God. And do not be conformed to this world, to this world, but be transformed you see, have a whole different attitude transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, the office God had given him as the apostle to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Some of our brethren or some of our old-time ministers think, well, I've always been strict and that makes me better. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Am I better than Mr. Ames or better than Dr. Moneo because I'm older and because they came to living sooner? No. No, I'm not. Maybe they're better than I am. Very few people on earth, I think, are more deeply converted and more loving and consistently kind than Mr. Dick Ames is. So maybe he's ahead of me in that way. Only God can judge. I don't know. I've got to do the best I can within the parameters of what I have to work with. You know, and each one of us, I'll just use Dick Ames because... I know him, and I won't better not go on down the line with Mr. Uh, Pardin and and, uh, Dr. Winnale and Mr. Crockett, or I'll leave someone else out and someone's feelings will get hurt. So you can all be mad at Mr. Ames, but anyway, (laughs) just use him as an example. These are all very fine men, and many of you men and women in the church are very fine people, but I better stay away from naming too many names here. But some of you may be better than some of us and your character. How dare I say that? Because I mean that. I've had a chance to talk with Mr. Armstrong and talk with Dr. Hay and other ministerial leaders in the past, and I think I told you this several times. We had a deacon there in headquarters named Bill Homburger. He was a Texas peanut farmer. like bet Jimmy Carter was a <laughs> Georgia peanut farmer. But Bill, of course, was not educated like Mr. Carter was, and he came out to Ambassador College in the early years, not to be a student, but just to help. He gave himself as a living sacrifice, frankly. And now that we're reading this verse, that's what he did. He gave his life. He gave his time. He gave his pickup truck. He gave about half or two-thirds of his life savings because he had been a peanut farmer. He owned his own farm and apparently inherited it. He had no wife ever, so he saved several thousand dollars. And the dollar was worth five or seven, about seven or eight times as much back then as it is today and what it would buy. So... Then he just took care of himself. He worked for years with no salary, nothing. And he'd work long, hard hours. And I helped tear up his pickup truck. And so did Raymond McNair and Burke McNair and all of us guys because he let us use his pickup truck. You know, that was the only pickup truck the work had. It was Bill's pickup truck, and we used it in the maintenance crew. And we weren't always wonderful drivers back when we were in our teens, you know. (laughs) Not as careful as Bill was, I'm sure. But he just gave himself, constantly helping, giving, serving. And he was always doing that. He never tried to exalt himself, never seemed to get upset, was just helping. And several of us evangelists were talking one day, and we said, you know, it's very possible, if not probable, that Bill Humberger will have a higher reward in the kingdom of God than most of us. And we really meant it. We really meant it. And he may. I'll look forward to seeing Bill Hamburger. But he had no education. He only had about a sixth grade education his speech was imperfect. His vocabulary was lacking. His grammar was lacking. But his heart was wonderful, wonderful. And that's what God looks on. He loved God. He loved his neighbor. He was friendly. He was kind. He was patient. He had to deal with all of us and our teenage attitudes when we came to college. And we worked sort of under him and cleaning up the mess around of Bassar college and painting the old walls and doing this and that. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't try to think I'm a big shot, I'm important. We're not. Maybe Bill Hamburger will be a lot bigger in authority than we will. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as the we have many members in one body, our human body, I have, you know, ten fingers and ten toes and two eyes and two ears and so on. But all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. See, we're one body the way God looks at it. We belong to each other. We're one body spiritually in Christ. And to think that way, be that way, be a family, and individually members of one another. That's the attitude God wants us to have. And to think about it also, brethren, in this larger context, which God does not make as plain, uh, because it's part of the mystery of God. You know, you read carefully about the mystery of God. I preached on this, but I don't, maybe should again sometime. The mystery of God's two or three things are included in it. One time the mystery of God is indicated as the resurrection. But other things about the mystery of God indicates it's what the resurrection leads to. Ultimately, the mystery of God is that the great Creator who sits at the controls of the universe is reproducing Himself. And you and I are drawing breath so that someday we will explode into a different dimension of existence and we will truly be like God. We will be full sons of God and the power and the wisdom And the brightness and the glory we will have at that time is something we cannot fully understand at all. But we will be like God. We will be like Christ, for we shall see Him as He is. And we are His real brothers. We will be His full brothers then, Spirit-born sons of God. So when you think of everyone in the church as a potential brother or sister throughout all eternity to give, to help, to share, to serve... Love them, help them, forgive them. I don't think once they're a spirit being, they're going to hold your problem against you, but it wouldn't hurt to be on their good side, nevertheless, <laughs> and don't be putting them down. They're God's sons. They're God's daughters. And I say sons when we're resurrected because we won't be male or female, but God calls us sons the masculine strength will dominate, perhaps, to a degree, and that's what's indicated in the Bible. Back in 1 Corinthians now, uh Let's go back to 1 Corinthians at this point, if you would. Chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, you know, again, we have ten fingers and toes, and we all have, of course, kidneys and hearts and livers and so on. But all members of the, that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Every one of us has been baptized into the body of Christ. You see, when Christ was here on earth, Jesus the Christ, he walked up and down the hills of Judea, and he performed miracles, and he healed the sick and helped his disciples in and out of the big fishing boats and up and down the hills, and as they did him too, no doubt, as all young men friends. But that had a physical body. He doesn't have a physical body He doesn't preach through his voice anymore. He could shout from heaven and shake the whole earth and start a tsunami across the ocean if he wanted to with his voice. We know that. He doesn't do that. He speaks through our voices. He speaks through Mr. Ames' voice and my voice and later Wally Smith's voice on the telecast. He speaks through Mr. Apartheon's voice in the French program. He speaks through Mario Hernandez's voice in the Spanish program. He speaks through the voices of every one of our ministers all over the world. And he's going to speak through more voices and more forums, no doubt, before the whole thing is over. I hope God will give us enough money not to have a big Gulfstream 5 airplane or to build a great big huge building. That's not my desire, and God knows that. I hope we can have enough to start a radio program... Maybe even five days a week and have another minister. Not me. I'm doing about as much as I can do. I'm not pleading sorry, but I'm doing about as much. I'd like to do more, but at my age, I can't do too much more. I could do a little bit more by being better organized. I'm sure Monica knows that. I kind of waste time every now and then and read too many reports or read the news. My wife sees me reading news at home. I better quit reading less news and reading more of the Bible, (laughs) writing more articles. But I try, and I don't do perfectly. But we need another Minister to do a radio program We need another minister To work as Mr. Uh, uh, Crockett Is now doing And maybe having even another minister Help him the internet Which is powerful Reaching the whole world It's a ministry One of our leading members Whose heart is extremely in this work Said what you do You need an evangelist In charge of the internet He said that's what it is It's that important Well we don't have an evangelist To put in charge of the internet But we do need a very important function there and need to enlarge that very much so lots more are going to do lots more things in the next several years i'm not talking about the next several decades i'm talking about the next three to six years or less this work must grow but if we have this loving warm welcoming attitude god can and will bless us more brethren we've got to have that there's nothing more important than that as you know god is love and that's what god wants us to reflect more than any other single quality. So anyway, uh, the body is one body. For by one spirit, verse 13, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, I'm not of the body, because I just work over, you know, in the mailing, or I'm not the body because I just work in accounting, is it not of the body? No. Every one is important And if some of you brethren say I don't get any salary I'm just out here as a Malay member Helping with my family And, and praying and, and so on for the work I'm nothing No, God needs you too very much And He needs every one of us But verse 18 Now God has set the members Each one of them in the body Just as He pleased Just as He pleased God chooses each one According to what's best at that time And we've all got to be humble enough to say, I want to do the best I can where I am at this point in time. He said in verse uh, 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. All of us are part of that body Jesus Christ is is using. And so we've got to realize that we're one body, we're one tool, we're one begotten family of God. And we've got to let that love flow back and forth as we would with a, in a loving family. Now, even in a loving family, brothers and sisters, you know, get into it once in a while. But uh, in a loving family, it doesn't become a serious thing. I know in my family, my father and mother even never mentioned the word divorce that I know of in a sense that they might be divorced. The word was never brought up. And uh, I never had any big fight with uh, my sister Patty that I can remember and if Catherine knows, she could tell me, but I don't remember ever any big fight. We might have had some little disagreement, and I don't think Catherine and I ever had a big fight. Of course, she was lucky. She was five and a half years younger, and so I was older enough to, I felt more protective of her, and, uh, and didn't uh, fight with her. Maybe if I had a brother my exact age, I might have been fighting with him. I don't know. But I had all these fellas that I loved, and none of us ever gotten really bad fights that I can remember. It was a loving atmosphere overall. But anyhow, you got to have this family spirit. God wants a family spirit. For we love each other. We help each other. We take care of one another. Once in a while, my friend Ducky, who had a real interesting personality, and he would fall in love with this girl and that girl, and he would blat off his mouth, and he'd get in trouble and get in a fight. Some outside guys started to beat up on him. And luckily, I'm not very big, but I got my full size almost when I was age 15. So in junior high, I was one of the bigger guys. So I'd pull the guy off and throw him. I usually didn't hit him, but I'd throw him away. Or sometimes I'd hit him. I'd protect Ducky. We had a family spirit. I'd protect him, and then he would take care of me in other ways. And other guys in the gang, uh, I wasn't real good at math and science, so Marty Taylor, who went on to be a petroleum engineer, and John Ivey and others, they would help our gang. We Five or seven of us studied together, and the guys who were good at math would help us with our math assignment. And I was always good at the thing I'm doing now. I was always good at English and literature and history and writing poems, so if they needed an essay or a poem, and said they seemed to somehow just couldn't write poems, well, I would just write them a poem real quick. It wasn't hard for me, so I would write their poems, and they would help me with math and science. We would help each other all the time, and that's the way it ought to be in the church, of course, as we help the Crespos and as we help uh, each one who has a problem, and uh, we, we we do want to uh, to help each other all we can. In the church of God. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's turn to the next chapter here. Uh, my Bible has flipped on me here. Don't know why I did that. It's a bad Bible here. Disobedient <laughs> Bible. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 13 now, brethren, the very next chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and certainly a lot of us in the ministry should pray for the gift of prophecy, the gift of inspired preaching, and the gift of foretelling as we get toward the end, supernaturally, future events, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith, we think, boy, if we could have faith to move mountains, that'd be the greatest thing there is. No, it really wouldn't. It really wouldn't from God's point of view. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, ...but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... ...you know, Mother Teresa and Dr. Livingston down in Africa... ...and other people like that have tried to give it themselves... ...and that's fine, That's the, they do that the best to their understanding... ...as Protestants or Catholics, and that's good. And though I give my body to be burned... ...and some have done that... ...but some have done it in the spirit of self-righteousness... ...or as I said, the Buddhists under President Diem in Vietnam years ago... Under France, it was rebellion against the uh, against the uh, Catholic majority there at that point, and they would literally set themselves on fire as a sign of political protest saying i 'm so mad i 'm going to set myself on fire, God let me in your heaven, let me up in your kingdom forever no <laughs> that 's not the attitude God wants. You see He wants us to give ourselves to him, not to burn ourselves alive. And not to just serve others way beyond and think that will earn, that's what I'm, I'm, I am my work my way in. No, the total surrender of the human mind to God is what God wants. The total surrender to say, not my will, but God's will be done and really mean it. And then to love that great God with all of your being and to love his other potential sons as yourself and love them, give to them, help them, encourage them, serve them. That's what God wants. Love suffers long and is kind. Real love doesn't get upset real quick. Some people get upset real quick. They have a quick fuse. Love does not envy. Some people sit around and envy. I wish I had what he had, and I wish I could be the next deacon, or I wish I could be a minister. I wish I could do this or wish I could do that in their, in their business. Love does not parade itself. Some people show off. They like to be the center of attention just show off for that reason alone. Is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, you know, really brutally putting down others and acting gross. Love does not do that because that hurts others and destroys their peace of mind and so on. Does not seek its own. This is perhaps the key phrase in the whole chapter, in my opinion. Love does not seek its own. In other words, love has total outflowing concern. What does God want? How can I honor my Father in heaven? What does he want, and how can I serve my fellow man? Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, again, doesn't get upset easily, thinks no evil, or as the margin is, keeps no account of evil. Now, some people keep an account of evil, and they're constantly thinking about so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did that, and I'll never forgive them. That is not love. God, Love does not do that. I remember a leading minister in Worldwide used to keep a literal black book I'm not exaggerating. The book was black. <laughs> and inside he would list the various uh, problems of this leading minister and that leading minister. And if their kid had some drunkenness or uh, sex problem or something, he had it all listed. And then when he came to work for me at one point, while well, he tried to put the others down by telling me all this. Did that gain him points with me? No. I said, oh, oh. If he works with this other guy in another few months, then he's got whatever I've done, and he'll, he'll do me the same way. You see, that was not love. That later, that minister went virtually insane and was put out of the ministry. And I won't go into more details than that. He really jumped the track, and I, I thought he'd been kind of framed at first. And I checked up on him, and he was not framed. He he really went kind of nuts, and they had to put him out. He was so into himself. Love think or does not keep account of evil. Don't constantly think of other people's problems, 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 and put them down and hate them forever. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't rejoice. Well, boy, this kid over here, he's, he's committing adultery or fornication or he is in drugs. Isn't that interesting? No, it's not interesting. It's sad. You know, I'll admit when I was first in the ministry as a young kid, in a sense, 22 years old, if I heard about some sex problem or something, I was more interested in it than I should have been because I wasn't very mature at that point. I thought, well, that's exciting, and read all these ministerial reports and so on. But as I got older, I realized that's that's just sad. That's just sad. God looks down from heaven, and he wants all of us to have a, a good life. He wants us to have sex in the right way. He wants us to have a mate. He wants us to love one another in marriage and in every other way. God's not excited about it. It's just something He wants in the right way. So we do it in a way that does not hurt other people and destroy the family unit. So He's not prurient about it at all. He made our bodies, male and female. But we're not supposed to be thinking of evil and keeping track of all that and uh, getting excited by evil per se. That's not... We, we just should be sad when we hear this rottenness in the world. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the Truth. Thank God we have some truth The understanding of the whole reason we're alive Why we're alive Why we're drawing breath And where we're going And how to get there Which the world doesn't do Love bears all things Doesn't get upset real quick You see Bears all things Believes all things It doesn't mean you're swindled But you have a positive attitude Toward what God says And have faith in God And God's way Hopes all things Here again is a good part of the power of positive thinking. Now, the power of positive thinking can be overdone, of course. I understand that. You've heard me explain that before. But nevertheless, that power is a wonderful thing if it's used rightly. Love thinks on the positive, not on the negative all the time. If you go around thinking bad, 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 and so on, bad, they did me dirt, and I'm going to get them. I'm going to hate them forever. This guy's a center over here, and these people are all scum over here. What does that do? that diminishes you as a human being and your whole approach toward your own life and everything else. It diminishes these other human beings, you know, in your own mind where you begin to despise the other human beings made in God's image. The whole thing is just wrong. It's sick. It's very immature spiritually, physically, mentally, every other way. So don't do that. Love hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love will never give up and quit. Love keeps on loving. I've given the example, but I'll repeat it again. To me, it's one of the most uh, special examples, I guess. Every now and then, through the many years I've lived, I've, I've read about so-and-so And so some states permitted and some states don't, but a, a, a terrible criminal, desperado, robber, rapist, murderer, was going to be convicted and put in the electric chair or the gas chamber or whatever. And who's the last one there to hold his hand? Often his mother. His mother. She never gives up. That's my son. And I don't care what the guy does. That's my son. Came right out of my body. And I nursed him on my breast. I changed his diapers. I took care of him. He came right out from me. He's part of me. And she's right there to love him and love him. And even though she may know he deserves it, she still loves him to the end. And then she goes to his grave and mourns later. This black leader several years ago, and I'm sorry, I should go, maybe Mr. Bomer can help me find that if he has time sometime on the internet. It was, it was maybe Clarence Thomas or the Supreme Court or some other black leader was to be uh, he was get on the on the hot seat with the Congress, and they were trying to give him the, all this investigation, you know, and ask him this and that, and who do you trust? And he he told them, well, he didn't trust the, them, or he didn't trust the Senate. And he says, well, who do you trust? This big guy, Senator, asked him. I trust my mama. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I trust my mama. Well, I feel the same way. I trust my mama, and my mama loved me to her death. And as Catherine knows, she loved us even after her death in the sense she set up these trusts and CDs for us that kept coming and kept coming. And we're very grateful to our mother. My father was a good man, but there's a special love a mother has. She never gives up. So let's think about that. Love others. Keep on loving them. Don't give up so quickly, even though they do something bad. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will see. So, by the way, I should explain this, lest you misunderstand. It does not mean the prophecy won't happen. God shows, Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. He said, right in connection with the prophecies he gave. But the prophecy will all come to pass. It'll all be over. There isn't any more prophecy someday. And then what? Then what? Then three things that keep going on going throughout all eternity. Love. Love. Joy and peace Or faith, hope and charity I'm sorry (laughs) Faith, hope and charity Those things keep right on going Those are the most important things So prophecies will all get over with Whether they're tongues They will cease You know, speaking in foreign languages Supernaturally That's interesting But that's not the important thing Knowledge It will vanish away Does that mean God's stupid Or will be stupid? No But all the stuff we think of As knowledge today Is going to be gone You say, what do you mean by that? Well, New York has 10 million people Well New York won't be here In tomorrow's world You see what I mean And all the other things we think of Two and two is four Well we'll probably have a different name for two And a different name for four And everything else will be totally changed So knowledge All the things we know today in general Will not be there in the same way Knowledge will pass away That's not the important thing either the main important thing is to have that attitude toward God of total love and kindness and warmth and adoration and worship and obedience. Not my will, but thine be done and kindness and love and outflowing concern for fellow man where it just flows out all day long. And when new people come into the church, you go up to them and warmly welcome them and pray for them and have them over to your house and take them out to a restaurant or something if you can and make them part of a family the best you can some of you can do all this some could do less some of you older widows or people on you may not have the money to do all this or the means but do whatever you can make them feel warm and loved and welcome and build that spirit that's what we've got to do brethren and god wants us to do that so knowledge will vanish away we will know in part and we prophesy in part we don't know the whole picture we don't know every detail of all the prophecies and i can't tell you every detail of what it's going to be like in the great white throne judgment eleven hundred years from now you know that we have the overall picture but that's all we know we know a little bit but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. You know, as I've said, when I was in West Central grade school, well, the bad guys were up in Columbia School up north. Well, then they became my best friends. We were all joined together in the same junior high school. (laughs) And then all three junior high schools, North Junior High and South Junior High and East Junior High, well, we were competing against either Get South, you know, or whatever, in our basketball games. But then we all came together in the same high school and learned to love each other. Then it was get Springfield. Springfield was the enemy in the annual Thanksgiving football game. We had to beat Springfield. Well, I did hate Springfield, but, you know, sort of an attitude. Years later, I was back in Springfield preaching and worldwide. We didn't have a church in Joplin yet, and I kind of kidded. Them. You used to be the enemy, and here I am preaching. here. <laughs> God's people all went to Springfield. So we had a different attitude. We're Americans. Well, yes, you're Americans, but you're also sons and daughters of God. See, you've got to think differently. We've got to think differently. I'm a man and all women are inferior because all men are smarter than all women. No, they're not. Some women are smarter than men. You know that. And different ones of us had different types of strengths. And when we're all spirit beings, we'll look back on our attitudes now toward sex and toward the opposite sex and toward all this stuff. And we will think, boy, we were immature. Boy, we were immature. Did you see the little cartoon? Probably I mean, this two or three years ago was in the paper, and it was little two little kids. And the little girl, little tiny girl, you know, just barely out of diapers, I guess, and the little boy were talking, and uh, the little girl said, uh, I forget the name it was, but she said uh, 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 Chadwick, or, or maybe his name was, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Johnny. We'll just put Johnny. Johnny, she said, are, are you the opposite sex, or am I? <laughs> I thought that was real sweet. Are you the opposite? Little children are so innocent. We're made male and female for a short time, and when we're first born, we're all kind of alike, you know, all skinny and crying and covered with stuff as we come out of mama. And uh, then we're skinny as we grow up, and then the girls get this nice look, you know, and a feminine look, and boys say, Boy, it's exciting! Well, yeah, that's nice. God made it that way. So we'd be attracted and we would want to love them and have them as wives and mates and sweethearts. And then the women love the men. I don't know why they do that, but uh, (laughs) I don't love these other men. (laughs) And uh, so then we get old and then the women don't look like this anymore. They kind of look like this. And many of us men look like this, too. We all begin, literally, late, later in age, we kind of look like uh, gunny sacks, you know, all of us. And then when we're little, our mother takes care of us, you men. She loves us. She nurses us. She changes our diaper. And she very clean, carefully cleans all around our mess without going into great gross details so my wife doesn't get mad at me. <laughs> the mother does all those things. And then... You know, uh, then during the teenage years and young manhood, men think, well, who are women? They don't need women. But then later on, they usually marry a younger woman, so their mother took care of them when they were growing up, or they would die, frankly, literally die. And then in old age, often the women take care of the men again. And the men are losing control of their bladder, and they're going around in wheelchairs, and they're older than the wife, and often the wife has to take care of them, and they all look like so many potato sacks, and they're all back back to the beginning. Dust thou art, and unto dust shall you return. We're here for a little while. While we're here, we need to love one another. Love is kindness and warmth and patience and outflowing concern. Love is not, well, you look sexy and I'll get you. No, that's not love. That's lust. Kindness and love and outflowing concern. Taking care of each other. My wife and I have talked about that a good deal the last year or two because she had this surgery a few years ago and I certainly loved her and tried to take care of her although she takes care of me a hundred times more but we begin to talk more and as I got older and had problems we take care of each other and that's what love is partly about we take care of one another so we have a childish attitude for a while but when I became a man I put away childish things grow up God is telling us for now we see in a mirror darkly or dimly. We don't see the whole everything now of God's whole purpose and all the prophecies in detail and the glory we will have in a few years. But then face to face, then we'll really understand and see God. Now I know in part we don't understand everything today. But we understand enough, and we understand the big picture, what God wants. But then I shall know, just as I am known, or the Revised Standard has it, then I will understand as I am understood. Then I will understand why, you know, maybe my friend Jimmy Mallett died way back when I was just 15 years old. Then I will understand why Dick Armstrong died back in 1958. Then I will understand, understand We will understand why Mr. Carl Manair died, why Mr. John O'Gwen died, while others of our very fine ministers died. Then we will understand. We don't understand the details now. We see God working without question. He's there. He's our Father. And I've seen that over and over for 57 years nearly. I know that. and know that I know that without question as he's intervened in my life, intervened in the work. Intervene powerful and in huge things in the world that the world does not understand, but we do understand. He's there. But then we will understand. And now abide faith, hope, love, that absolute trust in God and His Word, His way, His promises. This abides forever. This attitude. Hope. The best way to summarize it is Romans 8:28. All things work together for good for those who love God. And are called according to His purpose. That positive attitude, it is going to work out. We don't understand the details now, but we know God is there. He will work it out. Love, worship, obedience, adoration for our Father in heaven. And love and kindness and patience and goodness toward our fellow man. So then comes love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And brethren, if we can create a greater atmosphere of love and if we can create a much greater atmosphere of warmth warmth and, and welcoming and giving and helping and serving and receptivity to new people, to weak people, to people who dropped out of the church and come back, to our own young people who are weak at times, you know, and they're living in a far worse society than when I grew up. Maybe I would have been like many of them if I'd had surrounded by television and Internet and all that rotten stuff. I didn't have to face that. Most of you older people did not have to face that. They do. But we need love. And we need this kindness and warmth and affection. And welcoming people. Going up and showing them you love them. And making them happy and welcome. And being part of a family. This is what God wants. So again, let's read John. The Gospel of John. Where we started. John 13... And verse uh, 35 here, he says here in this wonderful instruction that Christ gave just before he died. I keep turning past it. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That was one of his final commands. His sign, the sign of love to one another. Let's do this please all of you around the world brethren pray about this fast about this if need be let it let this way let this love let this welcoming warm spirit let this be us.